Pastor and author Woodrow Kroll once said, with the power of God within us, we need never fear the powers around us. The truth is, the power of God cannot be measured, equaled, explained, or even contained. It is the voice that called creation into existence in Genesis 1. It is the wind that held back the sea until God's people crossed over to the other side in Exodus 14. The fire from heaven that consumed the wood and the stones and the dust and the water that was on the altar that Elijah rebuilt in 1 Kings 1. It is the shout of God's people that toppled the mighty walls of Jericho in Joshua 6. The strength in Samson who killed a thousand Philistines with nothing more than the jawbone of a donkey in Judges 15. It is the angel that shut the mouths of the lions in Daniel 6. It is the command that calmed the raging storm in Matthew 8. The quake that shook the earth, split the rocks, and tore the temple curtain in two as Jesus drew his last breath on the cross in Matthew 27. And it is the breath of life that filled his lifeless body as he rose from the dead, conquering death in the grave in John 20. The power of God, it cannot be measured or equaled or explained or contained. And do you know, it is that very same power that indwells every believer and follower of Jesus Christ today. The Apostle Paul said it this way, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far and above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as his head over all things to the church, that's you and me, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. He also said, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you, Romans 8:11. Do you know what that means? If you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, it means the power inside of you cannot be measured, equaled, explained, or contained. Unless, unless you choose not to use it. See, even as Christians, we can choose to live a life that is of very different design than what God intended. And so rather than follow God's desire for our lives, often we choose instead a life that we think we can control. One we think we can predict. One that we think is best for us. Listen, if you ask anyone in here who's 70, if their life turned out like they thought it would when they were 20, you'll find out very quickly that most of what we experience in this life is actually outside of our control, right? And that it is impossible to predict the direction your life will ultimately take. And that between you and God, between you and the God who created you, you are probably not the one most qualified to determine what is actually best for your life. So why do so many of us choose to live a life that's so much less than the one God intended for us to live? Well, in part, it's because we don't actually believe the power that is in us is greater than the power that is in this world. I mean, we, we might say we do, but we don't live like it. We, we don't actually believe the power that's in us 
is greater than the power that is in this world around us. So we tend not to rely on the power within us when we need it the most, even though the Apostle John, the one who wrote Revelation, clearly spells out in one of his letters to the church, little children, you're from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. To be certain, by the way, the power we're talking about is his power in us. It's not something we can drum up on our own. It's the Holy Spirit living in us that overcomes the world in us. And so look, if you don't believe on your own that you have the faith or the confidence or the understanding or the ability or the power that you need to live the life that you know God created you to live, well, then you're correct because you don't. Because the life he created you to live, even with all of the faith you can muster on your own, even with all of the natural talent and understanding and ability and power that you possess, with all of the human resources this world has to offer, the life God created you to live is so far out of reach, no human being can attain it. Which is precisely why when we're born again, God puts something inside of us that is neither natural nor human. The Apostle Peter explained it to the crowd who had gathered in Jerusalem during Pentecost when something clearly otherworldly was happening. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. In other words... You cannot live the life that God created you to live by natural means. Therefore, he's putting something inside of you that is not natural. It is supernatural. The very spirit of Christ himself. And only by that spirit will you be able to live the life you were made to live, as we'll see as we continue working our way through the book of Revelation. So let's pick the story back up right where we left off last time at Revelation chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, you can follow with me. We'll put it on the screens. We'll begin by reading through the first half of uh, verse 6. So verse 1 through the first half of verse 6, Revelation 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So one of the angels who poured out one of the seven bowls of God's wrath, as we saw last week, now invites John to watch the judgment that is to be meted out on the notorious prostitute with whom the kings of earth have committed adultery and whose adulteries have intoxicated the inhabitants of the earth. And on her forehead was written the name Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. In antiquity, prostitutes would often wear headbands with their name across it. So Babylon the Great is her name, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And we'll come back to that in a moment. And she's seated on many waters, which we find at the end of the chapter symbolizes the many peoples and nations over which the spirit of Babylon rules. And she's pictured as a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, the beast being the Antichrist, as described in chapter 13. 
Babylon was an actual city, by the way, on the Euphrates River that was known for its hostility toward God. And of course, uh, the Tower of Babel was built there in direct opposition to the authority and power of God. In fact, uh, Genesis 11 paints a picture of Babylon as Merrill Tenney puts it, and I'm quoting, as the seat of the civilization that expressed organized hostility to God. To the Jews, he says, Babylon was the essence of all evil, the embodiment of cruelty, the foe of God's people, and the lasting type of sin, carnality, lust, and greed. As a religious system, Babylon came into being long before Christianity, and yet it was from its inception a satanic imitation of the coming of the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, where according to religious history, the Babylonian religion was founded by the wife of Nimrod, a great-grandson of Noah, named Serameus, who was the high priestess of idol worship. And she gave birth to a son who she claimed was conceived miraculously. The son's name was Tammuz, and he was considered to be their savior. It was also taught that Tammuz was killed by a wild beast only to be later miraculously brought back to life. And then later in history, we find the name of the pagan god Baal all throughout the Canaanite religion, and yet Baal was the local Canaanite name for the Babylonian savior, Tammuz. And then fast forward to John's day, the New Testament era, when Revelation was written, and we find that it was Rome with its emperor worship and hedonistic culture that was the personification of the spirit of Babylon, as we'll see as we continue in the story. And so for the Old Testament Jews, Babylon, and more specifically the religion of Babylon, was the epitome of idolatry, blasphemy, and the persecution of God's people. And yet it continues to show up throughout history and generation after generation and culture after culture with different names. And yet all the while, it's the very same spirit, a religious spirit exercising satanic authority and power over those who freely choose to follow it. And so her name, Babylon the Great, does not represent the literal, literal city of Babylon, but the spirit of Babylon that has taken on many names all throughout history right up to today. And so this, uh, this prostitute, isn't a representation of government power or political power influencing the many peoples on the earth. We're going to get to that later. No, she's the embodiment of Satan's own ecumenical movement, the religion of our world system that many people will follow in these last days and in fact are already following today as people always have. It's the spirit of Babylon in its many names and iterations that countless people have sworn allegiance to throughout the ages, which is why the very next thing that John says in the second half of verse six is when I saw her, I marveled greatly because this wasn't persecution from secular powers or political powers as you would expect. Rather, it was a satanic religious power, a pseudo church power that was thirsty for the blood of the saints. As John Walvoord said, false religion is always the worst enemy of true religion. And of course, if you study history at all, then you know some of the most vicious persecution ever carried out against Christians has been done in the name of the church. In the days when a Roman Catholic Queen Mary ruled in England, she was known as Bloody Mary. Some 288 Christians were burned at the stake for their unwavering stand for God's word between 1555 and 1558. And then the first of those martyrs was a man named John Rogers, who as he stood chained to a stake, as the fire rose around him up to his legs and then up to his shoulders, he rubbed his hands in the flames as if he were washing his hands in cold water. Then he lifted his hands to heaven and held them high until he was completely consumed by the fire. He went to the stake with such calm 
and dignity that the French ambassador wrote that he went to his death as if he was walking to his wedding. That's a quote. His courage was so evident that the huge crowd burst into applause when they saw him walking to the stake. Donald Barnhouse said, we find in the course of church history that one of the deadliest marks of ecclesiastical corruption is the lust for temporal power. Okay, this is what John was witnessing in the last days, the rise of religious power, religious power that in the last days will directly oppose and attempt to devour the people on the earth, including God's people. Which is why it's so important that we understand and recognize now the difference between a religious spirit and the Holy Spirit at work in our own lives. Okay, because religious behavior and righteous behavior are not always the same thing. Being religious and being Christ-like are not always the same. Right? Okay, just because something is religious doesn't make it righteous. Often it's quite the opposite. In fact, you know, the majority of the people who refused to follow Jesus when he was on the earth were religious people. The men and women who grew up going to the synagogue and learning all about God. And so the very people who should have been flocking to him were instead rejecting the Messiah without even realizing it because they were more committed to and familiar with the religious culture they'd grown up in than they were committed to and familiar with the actual word of God. They practiced and preached their religious traditions and doctrines for so long they could no longer distinguish between what was religious and what was righteous even when those two things were worlds apart. And if we're being honest, we do the same thing today. I shared this story several years ago. I think it's worth repeating. I was uh, in seminary in Europe years ago and it was not uncommon for the students and keep in mind Uh, This is grad school for preachers, so it's a bunch of middle-aged pastors and missionaries, when I say students, and it was not uncommon. After a long day of classes and lectures and research for many of the students and even some of the professors to head down to the local pub for a pint of beer and some legitimately incredible conversations about Jesus and biblical theology. That was normal there. And although this was a British university, There were students there from all over the world, including some from very different religious contexts, like the American Bible Belt and parts of Asia and some of the African cultures and others as well, where alcohol and Christianity have historically been viewed as mutually exclusive, like they don't mix. And interestingly, there were questions raised by some of the non-European students at times to the British students to the effect of how do you How do you reconcile following Jesus and drinking alcohol? Like how can you call yourself a follower of Christ and and sit here and drink a beer? And it it would spur what were actually some really great conversations. And yet on another night, in a completely unrelated conversation, the subject at one point turned to American culture and what they at least think Americans are all like. And one of the European students turned to me and he asked me if I had ever owned a gun. Dude. I said, are you serious? He said, yes. I said, well, yeah, I I probably own enough guns to overthrow a small government. (laughs) Like yours. Which I thought was a good joke. But with complete sincerity and not laughing at my joke at all, this pastor, who, by the way, is a friend of mine now and who loves Jesus as much as I do, asked me, how can you claim to be a follower of Christ and own a gun? which led to another great conversation. But you get the point, right? 
Sometimes we confuse, probably more often than we realize, we confuse religious traditions that are based on religious culture with the actual teachings of God's word until we end up focused on doctrines that aren't even in the Bible. And what's worse is the fact that we can become so committed to our religious traditions and culturally based doctrines that we think we're pointing people to Jesus when all we're actually pointing them to is man-made religion. Which is worse, by the way, than having no religion at all because of how easy it is for people to confuse being religious with being righteous. Listen, Jesus continually pointed the religious people of his day back to God's word and away from the religious culture they had actually placed their faith in. And in the end, some followed him while many others didn't. But you can be sure of one thing. The people who chose not to follow Jesus believed with all sincerity With all their hearts, they believed that what they were doing was right. By not following Jesus, they were convinced they were right, that they were righteous. Now look, as believers, I don't don't think we wake up in the morning and decide to live our lives that day outside of the perfect will of Christ. I just think sometimes we believe we're right because we've been told we are by our religious church culture when in reality God may be calling us to something very different than the church traditions we grew up in which means being willing to make changes in your own life, even at the peril of some of those long-held religious traditions, because the further, and this is the point, the further down this road we go, the stakes are getting higher. When Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the end of days. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. You understand, he wasn't talking to atheists or agnostics or universalists or pluralists or people from other religions. No, Jesus was talking about people who profess to be Christians. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? These are religious people who think they're righteous people when in fact they are lost. We are so confused, by the way, in our culture, we've, we conflate sincerity and integrity. Those are two completely different things. Just because you're sincere about something doesn't mean you have integrity about that thing. Do you understand the difference? There's, someone can be very sincere and have no integrity at all. You could be sincere about anything. These people talking to Jesus are sin, as sincere as they can be. He's describing the same people here who John is seeing in this vision in Revelation. People who call themselves Christians and yet they've become drunk on the religious spirit of Babylon while believing they're following Jesus because of their religious behavior. Mark 7, 9, Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, the most religious people of his day, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And it goes both ways, by the way. This religious spirit, it's far-fetched as it may seem, as far removed as it may seem from us today. Just look at what's happening in our world right now, even in some elements of the church, where it doesn't so much matter specifically what you believe 
As long as you believe in something and you're sincere in those beliefs, then your religious behavior, your adherence to some form of spirituality is considered Christ-like behavior. It's the ever-increasing casual disregard for the truth of God's word that is acclimating people to the seduction of a false religion that will prostitute itself to many people in the last days who cannot recognize the difference between the Holy Spirit at work in their lives and a religious spirit at work in their lives. Which is why each new day, it's so important that we learn to rely, not on religious power, but on his power in us, which by the way, deepens our relationship with him. Because listen, religion without relationship is a recipe for disaster every single time. A.W. Tozer said, 100 religious persons knit into a unity by careful organization do not constitute a church any more than 11 dead men make a football team. Let's keep reading. The second half of verse 6 through verse 14. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful." So again, the beast here is the Antichrist, and the prostitute is riding on the back of the Antichrist system for this world. And so just as tyrants and dictators have always used religion as a tool to accomplish their purposes, such is what we see happening here. And the seven heads, which are the seven mountains, is probably a reference to Rome and the papacy, although we don't know that for certain. But Rome was well known as the city on seven hills. And at the very least, I find it compelling that there have been tendencies within Roman Catholicism to facilitate the formation of a one world religion before. We've seen it even in modern history. Uh, those of you who are my age or older will remember when Pope John Paul II uh, organized in October of 1986, uh, he was making strides to gain the approval of and partner with other anti-Christian false religions. And so they organized a prayer gathering, they called it, that included Christians, Muslims, Jews, Buddhists and others, and Pope John Paul II told participants that their efforts were, and I'm quoting here, he said, they're unleashing profound spiritual energies in the world. I'm sure they were. And bringing about a new climate of peace, the Pope then pledged that the Catholic Church intends to share in and promote such ecumenical and interreligious cooperation. 
The Catholic Review commented on this and said, the unity of religion promoted by the Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, and approved by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, is not a goal to be achieved immediately, but a day may come when the love and compassion which both Buddha and Christ preached so eloquently will unite the world in a common effort to save humanity from senseless destruction and lead toward the light in which we all believe. Okay, so as we've talked about in previous chapters, we can't say for certain who the Antichrist represents in our modern era, but we can certainly see the Antichrist spirit at work, fast at work in our culture today. Moving along, there are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. Again, we can't say with certainty who these statements are a reference to, but it's quite possible, if not likely, Uh, John's referring to the five world empires before his day. So Egypt, Assyria, uh, Babylonia, Medo-Persia, and Greece as the five whom have fallen. And then the one is being a reference to the world empire of John's day, which of course is Rome, with the other which has not yet come being a reference to the one world empire that is to come in these last days. As for the beast that was and is not, It is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. In other words, he's of the seven in the sense that he shares characteristics with all previous world empires. Remember we talked about a few weeks ago, there have been antichrists in every generation because the enemy doesn't know when the end is going to come. So he has someone prepared in every generation. He's of the seven and so he shares these characteristics with all of the previous world empires, but his fate is clear. The beast will ultimately be destroyed. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they're to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. This probably alludes to a ten-nation confederation, as in the image of the uh, ten toes in Daniel 2, who are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. And, of course, people have speculated about the European Union and all sorts of things. We don't know what the exact identity uh, is, who, who this is, but... Their actions, more importantly, are clear. They join with the Antichrist in the war against Christ in the battle alluded to in the sixth and seventh bowls back in chapter 16 that we discussed last week. So this prostitute sitting on the beast is a picture of the one world false religion that will be utterly connected to the Antichrist and his government. And again, it sounds like a movie script, like it's far-fetched. Just look back through history you'll find some religious movements, not true Christianity, but prominent religious movements, many who claim to have been Christian, willingly serving and being used by tyrants and dictators to control the masses. It's the same old trick, it's nothing new. There's an excellent biography by Eric Metaxas titled Bonhoeffer, wonderful book about the life and ministry of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a Christian pastor, a professor and author during World War II who stood against the Third Reich. And do you know that Bonhoeffer as a pastor was not only considered an enemy of the state but also an enemy of the church because the vast majority of the professing Christian churches in Germany stood in support of Hitler. There was a remnant of the church, they call it the confessing church, the true church that went underground and continued to not only preach the truth but to stand against the Nazis. But the point is it's not far-fetched at all to see organized religion being used as a tool by governments to control the population because it has in fact been happening all throughout history. The unholy union between religious power and secular power which left unaccountable becomes a wellspring of evil. 
Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. Mark 7, 20 through 23. In other words, nothing outside of a person can produce uh, unrighteousness within that person because the root of the human condition already exists deep within the heart of man. The sad reality is evil comes from within. And so when it comes to what you believe in, Jesus actually says, don't believe in yourself. How's that for a slogan? I understand this is probably the least popular point in a sermon outline ever preached in the history of the world because we're taught from the time we're children, at least in this culture, we're taught to believe in ourselves. You understand that's not what Jesus taught. He said, apart from me, you can do what? Exactly nothing. The root of secular power is the belief that we can do something, anything good, apart from Christ, even though his word clearly tells us otherwise. Now look, at the same time, we cannot overstate our value, our worth, but you understand valuing yourself and believing in yourself are two altogether different concepts because although God values us above everything else in all of his creation, I mean, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, right? Which means your value is off the charts. St. Augustine once said, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. Yes, God values us, and so we should value ourselves in the very same way, but God does not believe in us. God doesn't believe in you. He doesn't believe in me. It's why we needed him to send us a savior, because we needed someone we could believe in. The apostle Paul said, by grace, you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So to value ourselves is to honor Christ's sacrifice, the price that he paid for us. But look, to, to believe in ourselves is to dishonor his sacrifice because if we can believe in ourselves, then we don't need to believe in him. Author Rebecca McLaughlin wrote, to be a Christian is to acknowledge your utter moral failure and to throw yourself on the mercy of the only truly good man who ever lived. I've seen people quote the line. I've actually seen it in tattoo form. I can do all things, Philippians 4.13. <laughs> well, you left out the other half. I can do all things, how? Through him, through Christ who strengthens me, through his power, right? Through Christ you can do all things, yes, but without him you can't do anything. The Bible doesn't teach that we're inherently good, it says the opposite. We're inherently evil. David said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me, Psalm 51.5. In other words, every one of us was born into sin. The apostle Paul said, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10, he said, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 2.3, through the prophet Jeremiah, God said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Listen, whether we like it or not, evil comes from within. From within what? From within us. And so if your starting point for navigating this life is to believe in yourself, 
in your own power or the power of the government or of the economy or of the military or any other secular power apart from Christ, then listen, inevitably, unquestionably, and without fail, at some point in your life, you are going to have a crisis of faith which is exactly what's going to happen to so many in these last days we're reading about. As the world is falling apart without Christ, they will turn to a secular power, the power within men that is being supported by a false religious power, the power of Satan for answers, and yet it will only lead to their destruction because there is no power in this world that can save us. Only Jesus Christ can do that. So look, don't believe in yourself. Don't believe you're good enough. Don't believe you're worthy enough. Don't believe you're deserving enough. Don't believe you're strong enough. Don't believe you're special enough to be able to accomplish one single good thing in this life apart from Jesus Christ because without him, you can do nothing. Now, with him, that is a whole different story. As we'll see as we finish the story for today, verse 15 to the end of the chapter. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth." plot twist the Antichrist and the secular government powers that support him now turn on the prostitute they turn against the very religious power they've been prostituting in order to control the population why because ultimately the Antichrist will not tolerate any worship except of himself we know that from 2nd Thessalonians 2 3 and 4 the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God and so once his power has been consolidated, the Antichrist no longer needs the help or support of the religious Babylon. And so as David Gusick points out, he turns, out, uh, turns on her to dismantle and destroy her and her one world religion. And again, if you study history, this has always been the goal of tyrants and dictators and probably most politicians to use religion for their purposes and then discard it when it no longer benefits them. And yet the biggest plot twist of them all is when we find out the real power that is ultimately in control the whole time verse 17 God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose you see he lets the world have exactly what it's been asking for godless religion and godless rulers and yet he's accomplishing his purposes through it all as we saw back in verse 14 they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he's the lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful you see at the end of the day there's only one power that ultimately rules over all of creation and all of eternity it isn't a religious power and it isn't a secular power it is god's power and of all people, we, the church, we should understand that. And yet, if you look at how Christians in our culture are trying to better their lives, and of course, we all want to better our lives. 
By the way, everyone does. Believers, unbelievers, it doesn't matter. Everyone wants to better their life, to move forward, to progress in one way or the other because that's the way God hardwired us. So there's nothing wrong with that. But if you look at how Christians in our culture are trying to do that, right, to live a better life tomorrow than the one they're living today, by and large, we're pursuing all of the exact same things that non-Christians are pursuing to try and make that happen. And so our lives end up looking exactly like theirs do. It's, it's trying to work our way along God's plan for your life without relying on God to get you there. But listen, Jesus didn't come to give you a better life. He came to give you a new life. One that operates not under your own power, but by his power in you. In other words, you cannot live the life God created you to live by natural means. Therefore, he's putting something inside of you that is not natural. It's supernatural. The very spirit of Christ himself. And only by that spirit will you be able to live the life you were made to live. But that means learning to wholly rely on something otherworldly. Something inside of you and yet beyond your control. Something that will lead you into and enable you to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible. It's living a life that is not only spirit empowered, but spirit dependent. Which is, by the way, the part we don't particularly care for because nobody really has a problem with receiving power or guidance from the Holy Spirit. It's the part where we have to completely rely on that power and guidance every single day. That's the part we tend to resist. And so we go through life believing in Jesus while exercising a certain amount of autonomy over his spirit within us because while believing in him doesn't really cost us anything, if we're being honest, actually relying on the supernatural guidance and power of his spirit for every single moment of your daily life well, that, that'll cost you everything. Make no mistake, that, that's the price of admission for the disciple of Christ who actually chooses to pursue the life you were created for. I'm not talking about salvation. That's a free gift. No, we're talking about people who are already saved who then decide to actually live as God designed them to, which I think may be far more rare than we realize. Because living that way is an ongoing daily submission to the supernatural guidance and power of the Holy Spirit at work within you, and it comes with both great rewards and at a great cost to you personally. I'll just tell you, at times, it will utterly wreck your plans. It will humiliate every ounce of pride left in you, and yet at the same time, it will satisfy your soul in ways you never imagined possible. And it happens to be the only way to carry out God's perfect will for your life. You understand there is no other way. You may think you're answering the call of God in your life by working the plan that seems to clearly make the most sense at this point in your life based on your natural abilities, your own strength, and even your best inclinations toward God. But look, if that plan is not radically dependent upon the supernatural guidance and power of the Holy Spirit just to make each step along the way possible, then you may actually be missing out on far more that he's created you for. I mean, listen, Jesus, Jesus couldn't live the life on earth that he was intended to live without the Holy Spirit. And neither can we. It's all through the Gospels and Hebrews and Romans. Jesus' own reliance on the Holy Spirit. So honestly, if Jesus couldn't do what he came here to do without the Holy Spirit, what makes us think we can? I mean, you can certainly live a good moral life, a conservatively religious life without supernatural power. You can, but that's not the life he created you to live. 
Now the life he created for you, you have absolutely no hope of living without his power surging through you because that life requires supernatural provision and supernatural revelation and supernatural power to accomplish what he's created and called you to accomplish in your time on this earth. You cannot do it in your own strength. Every time the disciples tried, they drifted away from Jesus and failed miserably. We must learn to rely on something more than our natural ability, on something more than our natural talent, on something more than our natural understanding, on something more than our own strength. We must learn to rely on the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. It is our only hope of living the life he created you to live. And listen, when you combine the word of Christ with the spirit of Christ inside of you, You have divine authority to proclaim the gospel and to live it out in ways that would otherwise be completely impossible. Just listen to what Jesus said. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Luke 10, 18 and 19. Based on the proclamation of the gospel, he said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew 16, 18 and 19. He said, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them for my, by my Father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name. There am I among them. Matthew 18, 19 and 20. He said, these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Mark 16, 17 and 18. Again, the apostle John said, he who's in you is greater than he who is in the world. First John 4, 4. James, the brother of Jesus said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. The apostle Paul said, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ 2 Corinthians 10 4 and 5 do you have any idea the power that you have inside of you William Barclay said the tragedy of life and of the world is not that men do not know God the tragedy is that knowing him they still insist on going their own way you understand you anyone can read the word of God But only those who have the Spirit of God inside of them can proclaim it and live it with authority and power because it comes out of the substance of our identity in Christ and our own experience with Him as we learn to rely on His Holy Spirit within us. The power of God, the very same power that indwells every believer and follower of Jesus Christ today. Listen, it cannot be measured, equaled, explained, or contained, unless, of course, you choose not to use it. And look, as the curtain closes on this final age of the earth, the only people who will be able to endure what is coming will be those who have learned to utterly rely on the Spirit of Christ within them. And yet, you understand, the time to learn that isn't then, it's now. Let's pray.